Our message is going to be based on Lord's Day 25 as you are working your way through the Lord's Days of the Catechism. We are at Lord's Day 25. I'm going to, there are four questions and answers, and I'm going to read them through. If you'd like to follow along in your Book of Praise, you'll find it in the back of the Book of Praise on page 537. This is the section that begins and opens the uh, section of the Catechism related to the Word and the sacraments as they are uh, partaken of in the Church. Lord's Day 25, question 65 asks this, Since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all His benefits. Where does this faith come from? The answer from the Holy Spirit, who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. Question 66, what are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible, signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by their use, he might more full, the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise, that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Question 67. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? The answer, yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. Question 68, how many sacraments has Christ instituted in the new covenant? And the answer to holy baptism and the holy supper. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I would like for you to imagine that you are going on a road trip. And as you prepare for the trip in many ways, everything seems to be in place, you have everything you need, but the place to where you are going is new, you've never been there before, and the area geographically of the country or the province or the region where you are is not very familiar to you. So you need to have some help to be able to get to the destination where you are going. Today we have GPSs. I want you to imagine that your battery ran out and you can't use it. We also have our smartphones with Google Maps on them, but for some reason that doesn't seem to be working either, so you're stuck with a map, a paper map, and you're following along on this map that you have, so you don't have any verbal instructions to lead you along the way. I know it's a far stretch but we still use that once in a while. As you are going now, you're not sure, as you're looking at this map, you are driving along the road, but you're not sure where you are on this map. I see the road and I know where all the different points are, but where on this map are we? How far along the road are, are we along the highway? Are we at point A or point B? Did we pass the city? Did we leave it behind us? Is it ahead of us? We're not really sure. What city are we coming up to right now? 
For that matter, are you even sure that you were on the right highway? How do you know you didn't make a mistake? Is it possible that you missed a turn in the, in the snowy storm that you may be going through, or that you maybe perhaps missed a turnoff because you were so carefully looking at the map, of course, not the driver, your co-pilot? How will you know where you are? Well, for that, you need to take your eyes off the map for a second and to look out and see what the signs along the road say. This is Highway 89. This is Owen Sound, and this is where you are, and that gives us an idea now as to where we can reflect back onto the map as to exactly where we are. We need to look at the signposts along the way. That will tell you what highway you're on and how close you are to your destination and what city you're on and where you are. That example of the signposts along the way is precisely what the Catechism teaches us is the function of the sacraments. In this allegory, if you will, the map would relate, the, would relate to the scriptures. It has all the answers and everything that are in there. Everything you need is on that map in terms of exactly where you are and how things are going. That would be related to what the Word of God is because we are talking here about the role and the function of the Word of God and the sacraments of the church. So imagine then that the Bible is our map and then that the sacraments then are seen to be as signposts along the way. And we'll see why that allegory is a fit for what we are talking about with regards to the sacraments of the church. Now in my teaching ministry, when I teach different points of doctrine, I oftentimes go to various of the confessions that we use in order to use that as an outline for my teaching. Quite frankly, they provide an excellent outline and I simply expound on that over an eight-hour period of a conference that I would teach. In this case, I use Lord's Day 25 here for the teaching of the Word and the Sacraments, 25 all the way through to Lord's Day 33, concluding with the end, the last part of the Lord's Supper exposition in the Heidelberg Catechism, but I also use the Belgian Confession, Articles 33, 34, and 35, which expound even further what these are about. And I'll tie that in as we are going through our message as we see that taking place. The sacraments are signposts along the way. As you have been going through the Catechism over the last several weeks, you have looked at Lord's Days 23 and 24, where there has been a teaching about the role of faith in the life of the Christian in terms of our salvation. Are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? That was a question that was a heated debate during the time of the Reformation and during the time then that the Heidelberg Catechism, and for that matter, the Belgian Confession was written in the Roman Catholic context. The same kind of a context that God has given me an opportunity to be able to do mission work in Latin America where there's predominantly the Roman Catholic Church. So when I do my teaching ministry there, I'm able to go back to the Heidelberg Catechism especially, and it comes alive for them as they see in the context of the Roman Catholic system there, exactly what the Catechism is teaching us and how that is reflected 
and based on God's word. We are taught in Lord's Day, Lord's Day 23 and 24 that we are saved by faith. Saved by faith and not by works. That's the bottom line in terms of that. And then Lord's Day 25 comes along. And the first question actually summarizes what we have just learned. Since then, because of Lord's Days 23 and 24, since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Now then, let's talk about this faith. Where does that come from? How do I get this faith? And the answer quite succinctly is from the Holy Spirit, from God's Holy Spirit. It is a gift that God gives to those of us who ask for it. But it pushes it along just a little bit further because it says that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts in two different ways, through the preaching of the gospel and through the sacraments of the church. The two work together. And as we look at this then, we begin to understand how the word and the sacraments work together as God's Holy Spirit speaks to us through his written word and through the proclaimed word. But as we are then able to ask ourselves, so where am I at in my faith life? How am I doing? I must examine my faith life, and we are challenged to do that by the elders when they visit us in our home visits. We are challenged to do that each time we hear a message being preached to us. And it is through the sacraments that we are able to gauge, if you will, or have an opportunity at least to gauge where we are at and how we are doing in our faith life. They're like those signposts. How am I doing? Where am I at? I need to look at that sign. How many kilometers yet to the next city or village or where I'm going? Am I on the right road? Or have I made a detour unknowingly or even knowingly sometimes? And so we see this then taking place as we look at that, as the sacraments provide that opportunity, the, the, the sacrament of baptism. If, every time there's a baptism, we not only have the, does the family participate in this baptism, but we are all as a covenant community are reminded of the promises that we made when our children were baptized, or if we are not yet married or have not yet made profession of faith, we are reminded of the fact that we have that sign and seal of God on us as a reminder, and, and we need to ask ourselves, is it, is it time for us now, me to, as, as, a, as a young person, to now talk about professing my faith? We'll talk about that in just a moment. With the Lord's Supper, there is rightfully so an examination that needs to take place. Different churches do that in different ways. In terms of the examination, there was a time when examination was done. There was a pre-Lord's Supper sermon the week before usually and some devotions that would be given to the congregation to prepare themselves. Some congregations have received visits from the elders during the week leading up to the Lord's Supper. Uh, there are different ways of what we are called upon to examine ourselves. How am I doing? Where am I at? Where am I going? Am I on the right road? That's the signpost, you see, as we go through that. The signposts, the sacraments then remind us, where did we come from? Where have I been? They remind us where we are right now. Am I on the right path? Am I, am I headed... Uh, am, am I in the, in the right context? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I examining that for myself? And not only that, 
where am I going? Am I headed in the right direction? As we examine ourselves, especially with the Lord's Supper, am I going on the right road? Is this where God wants me to be in my spiritual life? Must I perhaps make more of an initiative and ask God's Holy Spirit to guide me along, prod me along a little further? Am I being faithful to the scriptures in my testimony? Am I being consistent with the way that I live my life in terms of what I profess with my mouth? And so we look at this and we see that the sacraments are in place specifically to remind us of our covenant relationship with God. God always faithful with his covenant to us. We not always so faithful in our covenant relationship with God. But we need those reminders. We need that nudge. We need that reminders to what we need to do in order to accept and proclaim those promises of God for his people. The significance of the sacraments become very important then. Why do we have the sacraments? Well, if we look at this in question 66, we read that the sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals. And they were instituted by God, so that, now whenever you see so that, perk up your ears because it's given you a purpose, a reason, the meaning, why. We were, they were instituted by God, baptism, Lord's Supper, the sacraments, so that, so that by their use, he might more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. Through the sacraments, God seals to us and reminds us about his promises to us, and we have a responsibility to ask ourselves, how am I doing in my promises to God? With baptism, am I raising my children the way I have made those promises? With the Lord's Supper, am I living my life? Is my life a faithful testimony of what's happening in my day-to-day -day walk? with God. But what is this promise? Seals to us a promise. What is this promise? Well, the Catechism spells that out, doesn't it? This is the promise that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That's the promise. God gives us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And then explains that further. Why? How? Because of the sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. The sacraments seal God's promise to us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we think this through for ourselves, then we begin to understand that the sacraments are intended then to nourish us in our faith life and to sustain us. Oftentimes, when we are making plans for visiting family or going on vacation or whatever, we might ask ourselves, when is the Lord's Supper being celebrated in the church? I don't want to miss the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Can I plan my vacation time or my trip or my, my activities around that so that I can at least be with God's people when the Lord's Supper is being celebrated? And that's an important question for us because of the importance of the Lord's Supper in the life of the Christian. It adds then to what God does through the scriptures. God through the scriptures instructs us, that's the word, but it is through the sacrament that he nourishes us and it sustains us. It's like, it's like the food that we eat through the sacraments and through the word as well. 
Oftentimes when we think about the food, the, the, the preaching of God's word being spiritual nourishment, I have had people that have come to me and they said, well, is it really that important to go to church? I mean, I'm not even sure I remember all of the sermons that I have heard. How can that, if I can't remember it, how can I possibly be fed by that? I respond this way. I've been married for 36 years. My wife is a good cook. Do I remember all of her meals? Do I remember what meal was offered on what day and what situation and what context and so on? No. But I know that I'm well fed. It nourishes me. Do we remember all of the details of every aspect, of every sermon, of every message, of every study that we do of the Word of God? No, perhaps not. But each time we turn to the Word of God and say, I guess now I remember. It nourishes us. We are spiritually fed, even though we don't remember perhaps all of the details of every sermon that we have been hearing. But it's important for us to attend services of worship, to hear the preaching, and to do the devotions in our own personal lives and be a part of Bible study. God's Word is our map. And we need to be reminded of that in our lives. As far as the sacraments goes, those signs and seals, those signposts along the way, if you will, would be meaningless without Jesus Christ because they point to Jesus Christ. The baptism points us to what Jesus Christ did on the cross in the washing away of our sins, the completed work of Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of his shed blood on the cross and his body broken for us on the cross as a reminder to us of, of that ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you and for me. And it's important for us to be able to see that. In Psalm 89, the psalm is divided in three different ways. In the way that the psalm is, the psalmist presents that. In the first 18 verses, Psalm 89 is a covenantal psalm, if you will. The psalm is written as a communal lament. God's people recognizing that they have not kept their part of the covenant and weeping and mourning because of that. It's not even a nice, happy psalm perhaps to read, but it's a good reminder for us about the reality of our own lives. Verses 1 through 18, as you look at it in your, in your bolts and outlines, you'll see where in point 3 of each of, of the different sections, I outline how Psalm 89 can be divided up with that. In verse, the first, first 18 verses, God says, this is my covenant that I have established with you. It's a description of that covenant. And then in verses 19 through 29, God says, this is my covenant promises that I have made to you. This is what I am doing to establish this covenant for you. And in the last verses then, from verses 30 to 52, we have our covenant responsibility and it's presented in a way in which God's people are saying, wow, I am not living up to my covenant responsibilities. I have failed. I have sinned. I need to turn my life around. I'm on the wrong road. I've seen the map, but when I look out at the signpost along the way, I realize that I'm not where the map is telling me I should be. Do you understand how this then all pulls together for that? In the first 18 verses, then God establishes his covenant. 
In verse 1 and 2, we have a, a litany of thanksgiving to God for his covenant. It sets it up as, as a theme of God's faithfulness in verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4, God establishes his covenant and, and talks about how that covenant is, a, is carried on from generation to generation. God's covenant faithfulness is established through the family from generation to generation. Verses 5 through 8, there is a note there uh, that God's covenant, there is really no one like our God. Especially we see that in verse 7. Verse 7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Are we not here in the assembly of the saints? In his church. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. Verses 9 to 18 talk about why God is so great. Divided into ways up to verse 13, 9 to 13, it talks about why God is so great on the earth. Look at the marvelous things that we see happening on the earth. Our God is a great God because of what he has done in our earth physically. Physically. But that's not enough. And then God explains how, the psalmist explains how God is so great because of what he has done spiritually for us through his righteousness transferred to us, through his justice and through his love, through his mercy and through his faithfulness, by way of the covenant relationship which we are reminded of in both of the sacraments. Why does the catechism specifically ask the question, how many sacraments are there? It asks that in question 68. How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the New Covenant? And the answer is two, by Holy Baptism and the Lord's Supper. At the time that this document was written, the prevailing opinion of the Roman Church at that time was that there were seven sacraments. This is very different. The scriptures identify two sacraments for us the sacrament of baptism, and the sacrament of Holy Supper. Thinking this through then, then we begin to understand and we want to shift into what the sacrament of baptism is all about. You will be, over the next two Lord's Days, be going more into depth in terms of the sacrament of baptism. I'm going to skim over the top of that only to get a reflection of this importance of the word and the sacrament. I mean, listen to what it says in question 67, specifically talking about the relationship or the importance of both the word and the sacraments. The map and the signposts are needed. Are both needed, it says, intended to focus our faith in the sacrifice of Christ and the cross as the only ground of our salvation? And the answer is yes, of course, or yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in his word and he assures us, helps us to know where we are by the sacraments, as the Catechism teaches us, to remind us that our salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. The sacraments point to Jesus Christ. The baptism to the washing of, his, uh, of regeneration in our lives to what Jesus Christ in his washed blood did. And in the Lord's Supper, 
the nourishment that we have from Jesus Christ, from his broken body, he died on the cross for us. Then as we look at this with the baptism, we ask ourselves, where does this baptism come from? The concept of baptism, as I read in the Old Testament, I don't read anything about baptism, but in the New Testament I do. How does that shift takes place? When we think this through, we look into the Old Testament and, and we recognize that from Genesis chapter 17, there's many different passages that talk about God establishing his covenant and where circumcision is the sign post along the way, if you will, for that covenant relationship that God has with his people. This, says God in verse 10 and 11, chapter 17, Genesis, is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, family to family to family the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you must be circumcised, you are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me, says God, and you. This is my sign, the circumcision. The shedding of the blood from the cutting of the foreskin is a reminder of what Christ was to do when he shed his blood on the cross. Paul reflects on that even further, because he reflects on this in Romans chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, talking about the circumcision of Abraham. He talks about it as being the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He had that seal, that promise that was made to him. And then God institutes the circumcision as a physical sign and seal so that we can physically see. We as God's people, need to have those tangible reminders in our lives. And that's what the baptism does for us in this situation. At the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, baptism was being practiced in the Jewish community already, in some ways, because Luke 3 talks about that and records the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist. So baptism was already beginning to be practiced at that time. But the transfer, the switch, the development, if you will, of circumcision going into baptism comes to us from teachings from Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 through 12, where Paul talks about baptism and circumcision as though they were the same thing in these verses mentioning both of them together. For in Christ, he says, all the fullness of the deity of God, that is, lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. You see how baptism and circumcision are seen together in this context as the, as the flow from the Old Testament circumcision into what becomes into the New Testament, baptism as a part of that. The Belgian Confession in Article 33 talks about sacraments in general. In Article 34, there's a lengthy exposition about what this baptism really means. No more shedding of blood. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ had already been shed. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the sign of circumcision. It replaces, baptism then replaces, because we are talking about the circumcision of Christ. Isn't that what Paul says here? 
Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. By baptism, we need to remember that this is something that is done to an individual, a child, but it has an impact on the entire community. When I was pastoring a church for eight years, I pastored a church outside of my missionary experience, and every time I baptized the child, I not only had the vows made by the parents, I also asked the congregation to make a vow that they would support their parents, these parents, and the raising of little Johnny or little Mary. It's a part of a covenant community that we are, and we have a responsibility every time a child is baptized, we have a responsibility as God's covenant community to be there to support them in the teaching and encouraging them. We are not an island, any one of us. We need the support of the Christian community. Baptism is done for the individual, but with the community support, God's people as a church supporting these parents. These parents will never be able to keep their vows by themselves. They are a part of a larger community. That's the significance of what we see happening in here. By baptism, we acknowledge that this child has been received into the church. We talk about baptized members and confessing members. And we need to remember as a part of this then that it is not the baptism itself that saves. Baptism is a sign and a seal of something that already took place. When this child was born, he was already a child has already received this promise. We might even say, go back. In our days, we need to talk about this. Go back to conception. When this child was conceived, when this child was conceived, he already has the promise of God that is sealed to him. Baptism is a reminder to us about what has already taken place in Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to be able to see that as well. In our baptism, we were reminded about the fact that we having been baptized, having that mark of Jesus Christ, are called Christian, and that means that we are set apart to be dedicated only to God in our lives. And it's important as we see this, then, that we remember that our testimony about this is that God will always be our God. Is everyone that is baptized saved? Oof. And I can already hear the rippling going through here. Right? That's often a big question that's asked in theological circles. And the answer is that there are covenant makers and covenant breakers. And not all necessarily who are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, even though they are baptized, are those who will be responding to the call of the gospel. There is a responsibility in our baptism as we are growing up that we need to take these promises on for ourselves. That's why we have the public profession of faith in our circles so that we can acknowledge for ourselves in our youth that these promises that have been made to us we acknowledge them now for ourselves and this is true for me I acknowledge publicly that I am a child of God we look through this and we then are reminded that what the minister does in the baptism visibly has already been done by the Lord Jesus Christ 
invisibly. This then needs to be developed as we look at Psalm 89 because in Psalm 89, in the verses 19 through 29, God is talking about his covenant responsibilities, his covenant promises that he makes to us. Remember that it is now we who are looking for God, first of all, hoping that he will somehow respond to us. It is God who initiates his covenant responsibility, his covenant relationship with us. He says to us first, you are my people. And then we respond by saying, we are your, uh, we, you are my God. We acknowledge that God has already made that promise to us. When we think this through carefully, we look at verses, uh, the verses 19 through 29 of Psalm 89, in verses 20, in 19 and 20, God makes his promises in the covenant. He specifies and singles out David. It's almost as if he's talking about King David here. But David already is representing God's people. Remember, it is in the line of David that Jesus Christ is to come. That's why the psalmist is singling out the king, David, here in establishing his covenant and making his promises. In verses 21 to 23, actually 21 to 25, we have the promise about the physical, the physical promises, the, the well-being. I will provide for you in your life day by day. Trust me. You can depend on me. I am your protector. I am your provider. That's the providence of God and what the providence of God is all about. And then in verses 28 and 29, God says, not only will I provide for your food and for your lodging and for the things that you need in your life, but I also, more importantly, will provide for your spiritual well-being. Because for my part, says God, my covenant will never fail. This is a line that has been established and it will come to its completion in the person of Jesus Christ. Our baptism then reminds us as we see a baptism taking place in the sacrament, we are reminded as parents that we have also made our promises with regards to our children. And we are also then reminded of the fact that not only that, that we who have been baptized need to ask ourselves, what does this mean for me? It's that signpost along the way to remind us, to nudge us along in our walk of faith with God. Let's move along to the Lord's Supper. Similarly, with the, old, with the Lord's Supper, as with the baptism, there are roots of the history of this in the Old Testament already. It's called the Passover. It comes from the Passover in the Old Testament that was celebrated on the night that the Israelites were delivered from Egypt. God killed the firstborn, the last plague, 10th plague, killed the firstborn of the Egyptians in the 10th plague, but he passed over the doors of those who had the blood of the lamb marked on the lentils of the doorposts of their houses. Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And that is the word in the original Jehovah, that covenant name Yahweh. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. 
And the Passover was celebrated once a year for a week long in conjunction also with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was a part of that. Now the Lord's Supper, where the baptism was done for the individual with the support of the, the, the community as a part of that, there's a sense in which with the Lord's Supper, the Passover and the Lord's Supper, the fulfillment of, of the Passover in the New Testament by the death of Jesus Christ, once for all, no more Passover, celebration sacrifices needed to be made. But there's a sense now in which this is a community event that's taking place. The Passover was for God's people in community with the intention of this also being for us on an individual basis an opportunity to examine our life in our walk with God. Baptism to the individual with a covenant community in the background. Lord's Supper for the community with the individual responsibility at the backdrop of that. Both covenant community and covenant child are at the very heart of the sacraments of the, uh, that God has provided for us in our own and our ways. It is significant that the death of Jesus Christ took place is by God's design. That's how God had planned it all the way along, that the death of Jesus Christ would take place during the time of the Passover. Not only because all the people were gathering together in Jerusalem and it would be a time to, to make sure that everybody sees what's going on, that's only a part of it, but it's because of the theological significance of the fact that Jesus Christ now at the conclusion of this Passover week was now going to go to the cross as the supreme sacrifice. No more Passover after that event in their lives. Christ is the Passover lamb. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When Paul talks about the institution of the Holy Supper, of the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper is instituted by Jesus Christ when Jesus also celebrates on that night before he is to be delivered over. He celebrates this as an opportunity where he is, and Paul reflects on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that he is the replacement, specifically mentioned of that. That he's the replacement of the Passover as we read about that in verses 23 to 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Thinking this through then, we begin to see, for instance, in the Belgian Confession, Article 35 has an even more lengthy discussion than the baptism. As you read through that article, there's a lot to unpack in that article that explains what the, whole, the Lord's Supper is all about. But the Lord's Supper is intended to nourish us. The Lord's Supper is intended to help us to examine ourselves. There is a warning there as well, isn't there? There is a warning about this, that if we partake of the Lord's Supper, not having first resolved our relationship with God because of the sin that's a part of our lives, that we could easily be taking part of this Lord's Supper to condemnation of ourselves. There's that warning. There's that judgment call, reminder for us. That's the dark side of it that some see. But as we look at this, then we begin to understand if we know that, then we can begin to understand and to know that this then is an opportunity for us to say, you know, I have some things that I need to make right with God. I have detoured from the road. I have detoured from the map. I'm not where God wants me to be. Oops, wrong road. Turn around, you turn back to the main road not continue along the same road, hoping that somehow you'll find the main road. No. 
We might do that when we are traveling. But that's not going to, that allegory doesn't work here now. If you have made that detour, God is saying, turn around. Go back to the main road. Don't carry on hoping that somehow you'll find that main road. Again, detour, turn around. Make those changes that need to be made and make that commitment. There is a sense in which when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are making a, another profession of our faith before God, saying those promises that I made in my profession of faith now, those promises that I made, I now reaffirm them, reconfirm them. And I want to boldly present that publicly before the church as a part of the Lord's Supper as that becomes a confirmation of our covenant responsibilities that we have, the covenant vows that we have made at the time of our profession of faith. That's why we don't allow just anybody to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's why we talk about fencing the table. You're familiar with those terms. Guarding the table. The elders have a responsibility to be sure that the table is guarded and the reason for that in our own tech context as well. That part of the examination comes clear to us in the latter part of Psalm 89, verses 30 to 52. Because there we, where we've had the establishment of God's covenant, and then God says what his covenant promises are, now in verses 30 to 52, it's as though the psalmist is recognizing, confessing before God that we have not done what we should do. We have detoured. We've gone away from the map, the scriptures, God's teachings. We're not living as we should. The last latter part of Psalm 89 is, is, is a community, a communal lament, if you will. We as God's people have sinned. We must turn back, especially uh, when we read in verses 30 to 37, God says to us there, if you disobey this and this and this and this will happen. And God's people are saying, well, let me have a look at this. In verses 38 to 45, you know what? We have disobeyed. Will God's punishment now come? That's the question that's being asked. What must I now do in order to be able to repent and turn around and go back to where God wants me to be? That's that signpost along the way that reminds us about where we are and where we have come from and where we are going in our lives. And then verses 46 to 51 are a prayer to God for his restoration in our lives by his Holy Spirit. By ourselves, we cannot turn around. We need the support of the covenant community to turn around and go back to where God wants us to be in our, in our life of faith. But we also know that we have beyond that God's Holy Spirit that provides for us what we need. By ourselves, we cannot do it. We will carry along right where we have been and we'll carry on in the same way unless God's Holy Spirit, and unless we invite God's Holy Spirit to change and touch our hearts of stone so that our hearts then become hearts of flesh that are mobile and able to, to accommodate itself to what God wants for us in our lives. The signposts along the way, the sacraments, help us to see where we are right now, see where we have been, Help us to identify where we are going in our own lives. When the psalmist talks about this, he concludes with a note of 
of praise to God for what he has done. The sacraments are given to the church so that we may reflect on our faithful God and respond to him in our own personal lives. And the psalmist then concludes all of this with this wonderful doxology in verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. And may that be our response also to these signposts along the way, the sacraments. May the Lord be praised in our lives as well. Amen.